chapter 5, just the first, second, and third verses, and we're going to continue on the subject of the rapture, rapture part 2, because there are not multiple raptures, there are not multiple second comings, but there's only one. But there are different aspects of the second coming that we need to focus on, and I think we're going to find one today that we can concentrate on a little bit. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, I'm reading in the English Standard Version. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. We've been noticing that in Thessalonians last week, a theme that runs in the book of Thessalonians and throughout the New Testament and in general throughout the whole Bible is the end of everything. The end of the world, the end of this existence as we know it in this time in space. How is it all going to end? It used to be a common question that people would ask, how's the world going to end? When is it going to end? Well, the Bible gives us some clues about the finality of this world. The mockers, as our brother was, was reading in Second Peter 3, the mockers are saying, where is the prom- promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning. Nothing has changed. And certainly the agnostic, the atheist, the Bible critic can say, you people are crazy. Jesus isn't coming. There's no indications of that. Nothing has changed. 2,000 years has transpired and Jesus hasn't come back again. And they think they've gotten us. But Peter says, God is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness. Because why? For one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God's calendar is different than our calendar. So that's why Jesus says, be ready, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. But one thing that was prevalent in the first century was when Jesus was in the world, and before he left the world, he mentioned time and time again, I will come again. And if he could say it to the first generation of of his family of God, how much more does it pertain to us who are the latter-day peoples of God, you could say? If Jesus' imminence of returning was in the first century, how much more should it be with us? I want to look at this theme about the second coming of Christ that seems to be the big topic of Thessalonians. So let's look at some of these passages in Thessalonians. These are all in, in the book of First Thessalonians. This is chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Second chapter. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? When? At his coming. There it is again. Chapter 3, 13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
chapter 4, which we preached on last week. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice that again. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. In the fifth chapter, the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Five chapters, five times, and they're all short chapters. And in each of those chapters, we have a reference to the second coming of Christ. Is that not important? It must be. Now let's go to Second Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 7. And to you who are troubled, now why were they troubled? Because of the persecutions. If you look in the book of Acts, when Paul went to Thessalonica and what transpired, they were going through a heap of problems there with the persecutors that they were under the mighty uh, persecution of. So when he says to you are troubled, he's talking about the trouble that they were receiving from unbelievers who were hassling them and, and uh, haranguing them. So he says in chapter 1, verse 7, and To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. For what purpose? In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What a powerful portion that is. Is that not? The Lord's coming is going to be with his mighty angels. He's not coming alone. He's coming with a train of the heavenly host are going to accompany him. As we were preaching on last week from 1 Thessalonians 4.16, that the Lord is going to come with his believers that have died, whose spirits are with the Lord right now. Their bodies will be resurrected, and the soul in this body will be joined together. And those that have died in Christ, it says their bodies are going to rise first. Then we who are alive, that is at the second coming of Christ, before our deaths, If we're alive at Christ's second coming, we're going to be raptured. That's what the word caught up means. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. What a meeting that's going to be. I enjoy coming to church and fellowshipping and seeing these happy faces, the love that you have for the Lord, the excitement that's in the atmosphere to come and praise the Lord. But can you imagine what it's going to be like when the host of the heavenlies who come with Christ in the people of God are going to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we're going to sing and shout the victory. That's going to be the ultimate end. But let's remember, as I said last week, we have a lot of calendar events on our monthly calendar, our bi-monthly or whatever, and throughout the course of the year, or maybe next year, you're already planning a vacation or where you're going, but put on your calendar the second coming of Christ. Because he might come in January, February, March, April, we don't know. The first, second, third, fourth, fifth, we don't know when he's going to come, but Jesus himself reminds us and says, be ready, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. 
Now the second Thessalonians chapter 2 passage here, we're going to look at this one as well. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, there's that theme, in our being gathered to Him, just what we were talking about, our being gathered to Him. We're not yet gathered to Him. Paul says we're absent in our bodies from the Lord. But when we die, we go to be at home with the Lord. But then the crescendo of our union with Christ is not in, in the um, intermediate state when we die and go to be with, with the Lord in glory. That is certainly going to be awesome. To be with Christ is far greater than anything we've ever experienced in this world. But the ultimate is when we, with Jesus, returns, either when our spirits are in heaven or if, our, or if we're alive at the second coming of Christ, when we have our renewed and reanimated bodies, that is of those that have died, and the renewed bodies of those that are living, we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the end. We said last week that that word meet appears three times in the Greek, and in each instance it's a meet to greet and then to accompany back. It's not a meeting to remain absent from the earth it's a meeting to meet Christ and with Him return with Him so that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be coming into the world, into the atmosphere here with all of His saints, with all the people of God along with the angelic host. And why are the angels accompanying the Lord Jesus? We get that in Second Thessalonians to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know God? Have you obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is serious. If you don't, and Christ returns, you are doomed. The Lord's going to descend from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and who will be punished with everlasting fire from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. How sobering that is. Now, rapture stage two. Let's look at this next verse. Matthew twenty four thirty one, which was read last week as we went, 10 different people stood up and read a, a verse of the Bible. This is one of the 10. Matthew twenty four thirty one. Jesus says, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect <clears throat> from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That is, in essence, the first stage of, of the second coming of Christ. The dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We mentioned that last week. We call that the rapture. And who is going to be raptured? I might uh, just add a little point here. It says the dead in Christ. So when you hear the expression, the rapture of the church, does that mean that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, that they're not going to be included in the Rising from the dead, the dead in Christ will rise first. No matter what your eschatology is about the second coming of Christ in the future, you can't deny the fact that the dead in Christ applies to all believers of all times, even previous to the coming of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit that formed what we know as and what we call the church or the New Testament church. Some theologians would like to look at all of the Old Testament believers as the church. 
I can see that in a way, but I think the common use of the word church is referring to those from Pentecost to the second coming of Christ is the bride of Christ. But anyway, at the second coming, at the rapture, the dead in Christ, that is all those who have died in the, in the past as being righteous before God because they received the gospel and the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. They will also be caught up with us who are alive. You might be dead, you might be alive, but if you're in Christ, either way, you can't lose. Your body is going to be reunited with your spirit, and we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So the, the, the uh, term rapture of the church is somewhat misleading because it leaves out Old Testament believers. And this is one of the uh, kinks in the armor of dispensationalism, and I have approached different uh, commentators and whatnot in their position and saying, how can you call it the rapture of the church when it says the dead in Christ are going to rise? And if they don't rise, when will they rise? Let's look at some more passages about the second coming. Well, let's read 528 first. This is what Jesus said. He says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. All. Our brother works in the graveyard over there. Raise your hand, brother. That's Harrison's daddy. I went to visit, visit him two weeks ago in the cemetery. That's his job. He's among the dead all day, every day. But they, all that are in the graves, every single one of them, even those who didn't die in Christ, they too, because he says, all are in, that are in the graves will hear his voice. If they never heard his voice, even in this world, like you and I have, praise God, my sheep hear my voice. You've heard his voice because God quickened you and made you alive and gave you a love for the Lord. He gave you ears to hear so you can say, Speak, Lord, your servant heareth. Lord, lead me and guide me, and I want to follow the good shepherd because I'm hearing his voice. We've heard the voice of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, when he comes, that voice is going to be a familiar voice. Remember Mary in the 20th chapter of John when she was saying to the Thought the God know what? Where have they laid my Lord? Where is the Lord laid? And then when she didn't know that it was Jesus talking to her, how do you explain that? The only my, one explanation could be that I kind of embrace is that she was filled with tears. Do you ever try to look through teary eyes? Everything is blurry. She mistaked Jesus for the gardener because she wasn't able to see clearly through those blurry eyes that were filled with tears. Where have you laid my Lord? And Jesus calls her name. What does he call her? Mary. And then she responds immediately, Rabboni, which means my master. And she went to cleave to him. The dead in Christ will rise. We're going to hear his voice. And we're going to hear the voice of the shepherd calling us the sheep. But not only us. It's even those who never bowed the knee in this world. And if you've never bowed the knee in this world, take heed. Because the good shepherd's going to come as a roaring lion. He's not coming as a sheep again. He's coming as a roaring lion. And to execute vengeance on them who know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hour is coming in which all that are in the graves are going to hear his voice and shall come forth like Lazarus. Lazarus! And he came right out of the grave. 
He's going to call everybody and they're all going to come out of the grave. No matter how they've been decomposed. They might have gone through the fires of a crematory. They might have been eaten by fish in the oceans. They're going to hear his voice and they're going to come forth. God's going to bring all those chemicals together. I can't explain it, but I believe what God says and it's going to happen. They're going to come forth, they that have done good. Do you want to think of yourself of having done good? Mm. That seems to be a little conflicting, doesn't it, with the gospel of free grace? I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. I have no goodness of my own. What is the goodness? Someone asked Jesus this question in John 6, 28 and 29. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus responded and said, This is the work of God. What's the work of God? To believe on Him whom He has sent. That's the good that we have done. By God's grace, we have believed on Him and that goodness of God, that righteousness is transferred to us and we have a standing before God that classifies us as good. Not just us are going to be raised. It says all that are in the graves are going to hear His voice. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. What is the evil They never bowed the knee. They never tuned their ear. They never cried out to the Lord. They never sought Him out. These are rough days. People are just not listening. They're not even sensitive to what's going on in the world. It's a hard, hard days that we're living in. It's getting worse and worse for sure. And the scripture says that. Evil seducers shall work worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So many people are deceived. But praise God, we've got the spiritual eyes and we can understand spiritual things because of the mercies and graces of God that he has bestowed upon us. Okay, in our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5.1, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, what is he talking about, the times and seasons? That phrase, times and seasons, only appears one other time and that's in First Acts chapter 1 when the disciples say in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time come and restore Israel? Restore the kingdom to Israel, I should say. And then he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. It's not for them to know. So here, as we look at this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. How did they not need anything written to them? Well, apparently they knew from previous instructions that were given unto them. And there was something in those instructions that gave them the understanding of having this readiness spirit and preparation for the second coming of our Lord Jesus. They did need some corrections because there was a a state of distraughtness about the second coming, that they thought that if, if their loved ones uh, had died, that they were going to miss out on the second coming of Christ. But that's corrected by saying, no, those that have died are not going to miss out on the second coming of Christ. They're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air with us and those that are living at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
we are aware of that. See, the unbelievers are not aware of that because right after this it's going to say peace and security. They're, they're in a state of laxity. Like I think that it is the case with us today. There's a spirit of laxity. Church attendance is way down all around the world. And I'm not saying that church attendance is necessarily the barometer that you can read spirituality necessarily from. I'm afraid to say that some of those churches are not churches and yet they're being filled up because they're being fed the, the political line and the acceptable line that everybody is good, everybody can be what they want to be and everything. No one has to bow their knee to the, to the Lord. No one has to obey the gospel. No one needs to repent. No one needs to hear that they're a sinner. Those are the kinds of things that the world has no ear to hear those kinds of things because it puts their self-esteem down and it runs contrary to the flow of what we hear in the media and on television and all the other outlets that feed into the idea that everything is okay. Everything is okay. Verse 3 says, While people are saying there is peace and security, that's what they're saying. And you know why they might have been saying that? Because this was approximately the time when a thing known as the Pax Romana had come into existence. What is the Pax Romana? It's what's called the golden age of the Roman Empire. When Rome had political power over all of these nations and everything could outwardly seem to be very peaceful, calm, and tranquil. Kind of what I guess the political arena is looking to kind of get to that point as well. Well, Rome had been a powerful empire and its its wings had spread across the whole Mediterranean. And there was a sense that had come upon many people that it was a time for peace, security, safety, nothing to worry about. Everything is under control. Peace and safety. I want to take an aside for a minute there because there is a misunderstanding about I think in, in, in society that everything's going to work out all right. And a lot of things, you know, by technological advances have given people a sense of, of, of security and peace. And, you know, we get great insurance coverages. We have wonderful medical uh, uh, people that are able to aid us in, in so many different ways. And the longevity of, of our lives now is extended to 80. That's the average age. Uh, 80 years ago was about 50 it's already, it's up to 80 and it's going to go higher probably as well because we're getting more and more advanced technologically in the medical field. In all other kinds of areas that you can think of, people are, are assuming there's a tranquility and a peace that they can have, a security, which is false. Let me read you something that I want to draw your attention to uh, in regards to this idea of going along with everybody because I think we the church can be like the ten virgins. Five of them were wives. Five of them were foolish. We can become like the foolish. What do they do? They all slumbered and slept. That's why right after that, next week we'll talk about those that sleep, they sleep in the night, but we're children of the day. We shouldn't be doing what they're doing. We shouldn't have that spirit of laxity. We should be on the alert. Now the Lord's coming for us is not as a thief in the night. It's not, it's not nothing worrisome to us. We, we keep wanting to say, as it says in Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus. 
Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Our desire is for the second coming of Christ. We're anxious and ambitious for that to occur. Listen to this. The violence and cruelty of gladiator shows is still to remembered. The Roman Empire at its height ruled over 2.5 square miles. Many subject, million miles. Many subjected people were enslaved and could be killed at the entertainment of citizens. The Colosseum in Rome, dedicated by the Emperor Titus in 79 to 81 AD, could seat approximately 60 to 70,000 spectators. The huge venue and others like it around the empire that wasn't the only place that they had these entertainment centers where large congregations of people would come to be entertained. Sort of like what we have today in some ways. The huge venue and others like it around the empire saw deaths of many thousands of gladiators. The early Christians were sometimes condemned to death in the arena. Even during lulls in persecution, they consistently spoke against, they spoke out against such barbarity. Such games were banned in the Eastern Roman Empire by the Christian Emperor Theodosius by the end of the fourth century. The last gladiator conquest took place in Rome after a military victory over the Goths. Gladiators fought furiously, and each side was wounded. As each side was wounded, the audience would signal whether they should be killed or not by these. Remember that? Let them live, let them die. Especially privileged peoples could descend into the arena to get a closer look at the dying agonies of the victims. But on this occasion, someone else forced his way down into the arena. A Christian called Telemachus from Asia had been moved by the depths of his soul when he saw thousands flocking to view the slaughter. He had entered the event not to enjoy the spectacle, but to witness against it. You you know, we we call that like mob psychology. When, When the mob's starting to lift their voices and clap and shout, Everybody seems to join in. It's almost like you just do it. It's like automatic and you are assenting to what the crowd is affirming and you just sort of join in with them. Well, anyway, Telemachus was there and he was observing this. So now what does he do? He gets into the middle of the arena and from the top of his voice, he shouts out to the 65,000 people in the Colosseum. He says, In the name of Christ, stop! He shouted that out while attempting to separate two of the gladiators. The crowd was enraged at this challenge to their entertainment. Telemachus died in a hail of stones and by hail of stones and other missiles. But his work was accomplished at that moment. He was struck down. His death turned the hearts of the people and the emperor. From the day Telemachus fell dead, no other fight of gladiators was ever held. Just because he said the words, in the name of Christ, stop. We need to be a voice for the Lord in a day when everybody is clapping and shouting and going along with the mainstream ideas. This idea of peace and safety, in the name of Christ, stop. And that's what the church needs to do. We need to speak up. We need to be the ones that are saying, stop. This is foolishness. This is crazy. This is sin. This is contrary to the God that created you.
in so many other ways in which we can express ourselves. What a powerful witness. Six powerful words from one man whose death brought an end to the violent gladiator games. Let us ask ourselves, are we silent in the midst of violence and evil? Are we being entertained by that which is wicked in the eyes of the Lord? Are we a part of the crowd that looks on at violence or have we raised our voices to speak out for Christ? Have we personally spoken six words in the name of Jesus Christ to anyone recently? Oh, may the bold witness of Telemachus speak to our hearts and stir us up to open our mouths to be a faithfully witness to Christ in the midst of this perverse and violent generation that desperately needs the gospel. They will say peace and safety. What will we say? How do we counteract that false claims of peace, peace, when there is no peace? Let's look at another passage of Scripture. Or the last one. Yeah. Peace and safety. Jesus is Jesus speaking again. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. These are all normal things. Both of these in Noah's day, eating, drinking, marrying. Those are normal things. This is normalcy. Verse 29, But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and brimstone rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. That's the suddenness of the second coming of Christ. It's going to catch the unconverted off God. Not so with us. We're looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing. This coming as a thief in the night has really no practical application to us. These are adjectival words that pertain to us, the church, because we are looking for the blessed hope. We are looking for the second coming of Christ. But those whose eyes are downwards and who are looking around, they have a false sense of peace and security. That's a false security entirely. And that's going to be terminated at the second coming of Christ. And here's another passage in closing that we need to look at. This is the most sobering chapter portion in the Bible. And I saw a great white throne. We talked about the end of the world. How's it all going to end? It's going to end at the second coming of Christ. When all of the graves are going to be open. And this is just another way, as I said earlier, there are different aspects and features of the second coming of Christ. You can't pinpoint one or two passages and say, this is what it's going to be like. You have to look at the whole of them and see these are the descriptive things that are going to be happening at Christ's second coming. And here's one very powerful one. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. This is obviously the cataclysmic consummation of all things. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Everyone's going to stand before God. And the book's going to be opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Hallelujah. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Yes, the wicked, the unsaved will be punished according to their works. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Is your name in the book of life? If it's not there, I have a big white uh, a book. I had a joke. It must have been one of the children's books. I don't know. It's about this big. And I wrapped it in white. And I put in bold black words, the book of life. I should have brought it this morning. And I held that. I have done it before. I've held that book up. I said, this is the book of life. And as you go through it, maybe alphabetical order, maybe by ages, maybe by centuries, whatever. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Jesus says, we're there, the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. How do you get your name written in the book of life? The Bible says it's already there if you're an elect child of God, but you don't know that. As far as you're concerned, you've got to repent and obey the gospel in order to have that assurance that your name is written in the book of life. It's like that archway. Remember that illustration I gave you? I'm coming up and I see an archway and it says, whosoever will may come. And I say, wow, I'm a whosoever. I think I'll come. I go through the archway and I look back and I say, wow, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I didn't know that on this side here. I only saw whosoever will may come. But on this side, when I get in, I see the family secret. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. I didn't know that then, but now I know it now. God had chosen me in Christ before the foundation of the world. But I don't know about you. You need to hear the whosoever will may come and believe and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He that shall come will come and will not tarry. Be ready for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the gospel. The gospel of power that saves to the uttermost those that come to you, Lord. As guilty, hell-deserving, condemned sinners. That we can look to you, Lord, for your mighty grace and mercy. For your great salvation that you offer to precious souls. Lord, for anyone that does not know that their name is written in the book of life. We ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to draw them to yourself. We know, Lord, that it's of you that people come to Christ and they can't on their own. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work in such a way that they would feel their conviction of sin, that their need to come to Christ, to cry out to Him, to behold the Lamb of God, to take away their sin. Lord, have mercy on them. We do pray Thee. Thank You, Father, for this glorious theme we've been entertaining this morning, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, truly, this is a superior teaching of the word and may we O oh god cherish it and recognize the imminence of christ coming every day and all days every month every year lord we don't know when you're coming but we know lord you tell us to be ready thank you lord that we don't have to worry as a thief coming in the night we know lord that you are coming we are prepared we are your people and we praise you and thank you that you have delivered us from the wrath to come Receive our praise and worship, Lord, as we give you glory and honor in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.